you brought your Bibles with you, because we're going to be in it. Let's begin in uh, Psalm 85, and while you're turning there, let me just say a word of uh, thanks to Brother Paul and uh, several other pastors I know that have been a part of Reach Rutherford. How many of you, by show of hands, did were able to participate in some of the missions outreach for Reach Rutherford? Now we've got a few. All right, got more than a few, some pockets here and there. What a, what a blessing it is each year for the past, I guess, four years to be a part of, of a mission week that's sort of like a blitz, getting out and, and getting her done with the gospel. But that one week's not all, we should be satisfied with that, should we? Never satisfied with just a, a moment or, a, or even a season. We want a perpetual, we want everything, every day, every minute of our lives to be, the, for, to be days saturated in Him, saturated in the Word, and going out and telling others. So that's our responsibility. That's free. That's not even part of this message tonight. Uh, Real quickly, there's a, uh, a song, a hymn, it's an old hymn, that I, I want you to sing it after we read this scripture passage, and you probably know it, it's a short hymn, Spirit of the Living God, fall fresh on me, melt me, mold me, fill me, use me, Spirit of the Living God, fall fresh on me. Let's read Psalm 85, if you would, just stand with me together as we read. The scripture, the inerrant, infallible, unchanging, inspired word of God. Amen. What you hold in your hands is truth, will always be truth. The grass is going to wither, the flower is going to fade, but the word of God is going to endure forever. We'll read 85, uh, Psalm 85. I'm also going to read out of Second Chronicles, but we're just going to read 85 right now. Listen to what the word of the Lord says uh, through the psalmist. Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. You have taken away all your wrath. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. Something happens between verse 3 and 4. Restore us or turn us, O God, of our salvation and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for He will speak peace to His people and to His saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him, that glory may dwell in your land. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. 
Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before Him, and shall make His footsteps our pathway. If you know that song, I want you to sing it with me as a prayer to the Lord. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Melt me, mold me, fill me, use me, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Spirit, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for this time of gathering together. For the purpose, Lord, of praying, of seeking, of being in a desperate situation that we're in, Lord. To call upon your name. To believe that, God, you're still on your throne. We know you are. God, we look to your word and we look to your spirit to speak to us tonight. Everyone that's gathered here together, Lord, I pray that you'll speak intently and intentionally into our hearts. Lord, you know where we need to be challenged and convicted. You know where we need to be comforted. Lord, you know where we need to be changed from the inside out. Well, I thank, Lord, if there's anybody here that needs salvation, that tonight would be the night. Today would be the day. The hour would be now to receive Christ as Savior and Lord. And for those of us who are gathered together, who know Christ, Lord, I pray that today you would just continue to fill us Continue to make us and mold us and shape us and give us, Lord, continual strength to do your will and your work in this place as we pray desperately for revival and for an awakening in Rutherford County and beyond. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know about you, but I am the older I get, and I know I'm still fairly young, although I'm now in the middle between some of the pastors that have been preaching this week. Yeah, I'm in the middle. Now tomorrow you're going to have one that's uh, a, little, a little above the middle. I think yesterday maybe had somebody a little bit above the middle. But, but you know what? We're all brothers in Christ. We're all called to be what God has called us to be. As I've been thinking about this week, I've been here Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. didn't get to be here last night. The Lord has just impressed upon my heart the, the, the continual need to understand and to recognize His holiness. You cannot be casual with a holy God. You cannot be comfortable and just sort of casual with His presence. It's important for us to have a high view, the right view of who God is. Holy, holy, holy. And the understanding that we are called to follow Him, obey Him, and serve Him, and witness for Him, and to get out of our lethargy, out of the sort of that apathy and, and indifference. Heard a Couple, I uh, heard a story about a couple of guys that were talking about the world. You, you know how people do this. They'll, they'll go around, uh, maybe it's a restaurant or somewhere, and they'll just talk about things about the world and how they can change the world, right? I mean, you're solving the world at Hardee's about every Monday morning, about 6.37, you see some men in there, maybe down in Green Hill and this country store down there. But I heard somebody say one time, I believe 
The problem in America today, I believe the problem in America today is ignorance and apathy. He said, what do you think? And he turned to the guy and asked him. He said, what do you think? He says, I don't know and I don't care. Some of you, it's going to take just a second to get that, right? I believe that's part of the problem in the church today. We don't, we don't really know what's going on. There's a lot of spiritual things going on in the, in, in the realm here, and I think sometimes we're oblivious to it. And there's also a lot of apathy. We've unfortunately in the church today, and I'm speaking to me, I'm preaching to me, this big old thumb's pointing at me when I'm pointing out there, is we've become like the church of Laodicea. Are you familiar with that church? Go to the book of Revelation chapter 3. You'll see seven churches from chapters 2 and 3. And each one progressively is getting worse in terms of immorality and idolatry. And pretty soon Jesus, when he's walking through those candlesticks and those churches, by the time you get to the seventh church, he's not even in the church. He's outside knocking on the door. Why? Because that church is apathetic and indifferent and prideful. They think they have it all together. That might be, my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, the position that we're in in America today. I heard an evangelist one time say that, uh, he said, listen, if you want to see revival, how many of you want to see revival? How many of you want to feel revival? How many of you want to experience revival? I think we would all raise our hands to that, nod to that, and agree to that. But he said, if you want to see revival, regardless if it comes in your county or your state or across America, and it's happened before, and I'm praying the Lord will do it again. He said, but first of all, you, you, Go home, take a piece of chalk, because it can erase, I guess. <laughs> take a piece of chalk, draw a circle, get inside of that circle, and pray for everything in that circle to be revived. What's he talking about? Me? It's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of revival. How's God worked in your heart this week? If you've been here every day, you've heard a word of the Lord, we've worshipped together, the Spirit has been here, it's been very lively How's he worked in your life? Think about that. I'm going to give you a minute, just a minute to say something about that. But I want you to look at the passage we just read here. As I was thinking about this passage over the last few weeks, especially the last week, I thought about the Lord giving me a word out of this particular psalm because it speaks of the importance and it speaks of the need that we have both in our country and even in our churches and even in our families and individually. Look at the first three verses again. Notice, notice what he starts out here. He goes back to the past. He says, look, Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You've brought back the captivity of Jacob. He's referring to the time in which the people of Israel had left God, had wandered, and, and as a result of that, God had caused nations to rise up against them to take them over into a land of captivity. He says, you've brought us back. Then he says, not only that, but you have, in verse 2, forgiven, forgiven us the iniquity of your people. You've covered all the sin. And then in verse 3 he says, you've taken away all of your wrath. and You've turned from the fierceness of your anger. He says, I'm looking back to that day and that time when you did that for us. But now we're living in the present. And so somewhere between verses 3 and 4, something has gone awry. You see, if you look at America's history in 1776, we were born as a nation. Now, we weren't a covenant nation like Israel, but we were a nation founded and grounded in the Word of God and Christianity. Nobody can deny that. No atheist, no historian can deny that. Our, our leaders, the president, even George Washington, had a two-hour prayer meeting after his inauguration. I'd like to see that in our day and time, wouldn't we? Our nation was founded with 
The understanding that it is God who has brought us here. It's God who can keep us. And if we turn from God, look what will happen. And what has happened over the past 200 years? A continual drifting and drifting and negligence and drifting. Let me give you a sort of humorous story here. Back when I was younger, maybe nine, eight, nine years old, my mother, I've lived with my mother all my, all my life, so my mother and my brother and I would go down to Myrtle Beach. Love Myrtle Beach, right? We'd go down to Myrtle Beach, spend a week down there. It was just our time to get away from the hustle and bustle of work and school and all that. And so sure enough, we'd get to go to the beach. But she'd always tell us, make sure you pay attention where we're at, where we're on the, on the sand. So when you go out to the ocean, into the ocean, make sure you know the little place we're at. And so we had a nice little blanket, nice little umbrella, and I kept my eyes on it. But I loved the ocean. Getting in there and running around, swimming around, jumping and just sliding and all kinds of stuff. I mean, just enjoying it. Well, I noticed when I looked up to the shore to get ready to go in that the umbrella wasn't there. And the blanket that I was supposed to be looking at was not there. I looked and scanned this way. I looked and scanned that way. And there was tons and tons of people there, but not my mom and not the umbrella. So I started to panic. Where am I? Did I go down to Florida? Where am I at now? I don't know. Sure enough, though, I ran out, ringing wet, just kind of hollering and Guys are asking me, what, what's wrong, son? What's wrong? What are you looking for? What are you, I'm trying to find my mom. I'm trying to find my umbrella. And so we started walking and walking and walking. I'm looking. That's not it. That's not it. That's not it. We're walking and walking and walking. And I tell you, probably a half a mile later, finally found where we were. Now, I say all that to say this. I didn't know that I kept drifting and drifting and drifting and drifting and drifting. Because I was caught up in myself and what I was doing. That's the state of America. And so what he's saying in Psalm 85 is this. He says, you've, you've done all that for us in the past, Lord. And, 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 and that's awesome and that's great. But now we're in a place where we have gone back on you. We have backslidden. We have gone the other direction. And so look at verse 4 and what he says here. He says, restore us, O God, of our salvation. That word means to turn back. In the Hebrew, it's shuv. It means to, to put us back in another position, the position that we were in before where we recovered and where we were well taken care of. And he pleased. This is a prayer, by the way. He pleased with him. Cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Not just us now, but will your anger continue to carry through into the next generations? In verse 6. Here's the plea. Here's the cry. Here's my cry. Here's my plea. I hope it's your plea as well and your cry tonight for our nation, for our churches, for us individually. Will you not revive us again that your people may what? Rejoice in you. This leads me to think about another passage. So I want you to hold your place there, but I want you to go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. A couple of the messages this week have been from Chronicles, and I think it's very appropriate. Even though we're on this side of the cross, and we're in New Testament territory now, we still need to learn from how God worked in the Old Testament with His people Israel. And as we do, we come to the place where Solomon has carried forth, and is continuing to carry forth, David, his father's uh, plans, and that is to build a temple, a permanent place where in that time God would inhabit. Now guess where He inhabits now? This temple. The temple of the people of God. But in this time, in this day, God had set apart Solomon and the people of Israel to build this temple, and sure enough, they had, and something amazing happens in the very first verse of the first chapter, of the seventh chapter there, it says, When Solomon had finished praying, 
Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Can you get a picture of that? I mean, can you imagine even being in that place? We see what happens next in verse 2. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. Oh, to God that that would be every Sunday morning, every Wednesday night, every Sunday night, that we would be so enamored with the glory of God in our presence that we couldn't even get in there because it's so thick. Verse 3. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Wow. But go on a little bit further here. After all the celebration, after all the dedication and the consecration of of the courts and the building and all the the parade has gone through. Look at verse 12. Go back to verse 11. It says, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house, and Solomon successfully accomplished all that came into his heart to make in the house of the Lord and in his own house. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon. Now we don't know how this appearance was, but we do know that there was some contact, conversation here, and the Lord, it says, it was by night, and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. And notice what he says here in verse 13. He says, When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people. Now stop before we go to the next verse. Why would God do that? Why would he cause rain to stop? Why would he cause locusts to devour the land? Why would he send a pestilence among the people? Well, the reason is because the people will drift and turn away from God. And he says, when that happens, we've got a way out. There's a way to be revived. There's a way to be brought back to the place in this relationship. And he says it in verse 14. He says, if my people who are called by my name, this is not anybody else, This is not the pagan people. This is not Assyria. This is not the Philistines. This is Israel, the people of God. My people who are identified by my name, they're representing their daddy here, their father, right? He says, if they will humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their land or their sin, and will heal their land. Now I realize you've been in the church long enough, like John 3.16, you've probably heard this a hundred times. And it's so easy for us if we're not careful to come across scriptures that we know so well and sort of just say, well, I know that. I know that, and I know that. Let's be careful today that we don't do that. But let's kind of watch and see what happens here. I believe this is a vision, if you will, of revival. This is what the revived life looks like for the individual person as well as for the people of God. Notice number one, what he says here. He says, if my people called by my name will first of all what? Humble themselves. Humble themselves. It's hard. Let's be honest. It's hard to be humble, is it not? You're not born wanting to be humble. When I was a little boy, I didn't want to be humble. I wanted to be first. I wanted to do that. I wanted to take that toy. You know the whole thing. If that's your toy, it's my toy. And if, if it's not, uh, there's a the whole thing here. And uh, I can't remember where I got it from. But it's like, if it's broken, it's your toy. But everything else is my toy, right? And the word, by the way, I, in the Greek, you know how it's spelled? E-G-O. 
ego, ego. In the Greek, that means I. But we've come a long way to understand that I, the ego, means that it's pride, right? If there's anything that's going to keep us as a church from experiencing revival, if it's anything that's going to keep us from being able to see God move for us to be salt and light in our communities, it's because we love ourselves too much. We're too prideful. I believe the root of every single sin, you name a sin, you could toss a sin out right now, and I'll tell you the root of it. The root of it is pride. Because pride says, it means to, to rise, it means to swell up. It's sort of like the rising of the waves of the sea. And pride says, I can do it my way. I don't need God. I know what's best. I call the shots in my life. Here's a few evidences of pride in somebody's life. And I think we can all relate to this. Pride refuses to listen. It always interrupts others. Pride likes to talk about itself all the time. You ever been around somebody that just likes to just talk about themselves all the time? Have you ever talked about yourself all the time? Pride has an intense desire to be noticed. Pride believes that it deserves everything it gets. Pride is not thankful. Pride cannot be corrected. Have you ever tried to tell somebody, hey, you didn't do this right, but somehow they kind of figure out and say, yes, they did. Pride does not like to follow instructions. Pride exalts itself in the presence of others. It likes to brag. And pride criticizes and tries to make itself look better by putting others down. The only person God sends away empty is the person who's full of himself. Pride gets in the way. Pride likes to deal with the respectable rather than the real. Pride likes to deal with generalities, not specifics. Oh, Lord, forgive me of all my sins. Do you really, believe, do you really mean that? Or is it, Lord, forgive me of this specific sin? Pride also is concerned about what other people think, listen to this, than what God really knows. Pride is satisfied with the way things are. The Word of God says, God hates. That's a strong word, isn't it? Pride. Read Proverbs 6 through 16 through 19. You'll see six or seven different things that he says that he hates. Pride is the result of someone who does not ultimately give their lives to Christ in humility. But that's not the way Jesus came. Philippians 2, 5, 7, and 8, you know it here. It says, you should have the same mind of that as Jesus Christ, who emptied himself, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a what? Cross. Jesus humbled himself. He gave himself so that we might have life. I call myself a dependent Baptist. That's what I am. I'm dependent on Jesus for everything. I, can't, I don't have anything on my own. He's the one who saved me. He's the one who redeemed me. He's the one who gives me life. He's the one who does it all. And so the Bible says that we are to humble ourselves because if you don't humble yourself, guess who will? Would you like God to humble yourself or would you like to humble yourself? I don't know that that's a really good option, is it? I will humble myself graciously, O oh Lord. But he's saying this to Solomon and he's saying this to tell the people, if my people will humble themselves to come to that place where they are no longer seeking their own, they're denying themselves, they're listening to who I am and they want to follow after me. But then he goes on to the next one here. He says, next, humble themselves and then what? Pray. If you go to any church today, I'm, I'm firmly a strong believer in this. The least most important thing, it seems, is what? Prayer. 
We're a prayerless church. We're a prayerless society. Prayerlessness is an enemy of revival. But prayer is not just throwing out, what here's what I want, God. Prayer is listening. Prayer is seeking. Prayer is wanting to be in relationship with this God who's made himself real to us. We're called to pray. And pray is, prayer, of course, requires for us to be humble. You see that they're, they're connected there, right? And it causes us to have to be disciplined about that. We need to set a time. And, and even throughout the day, as Paul would say, the Apostle Paul would say, pray without ceasing. Continue this kind of prayer. There's a great story that I read about uh, uh, Dwight Moody who was a famous evangelist from Chicago. And so he decided he needed to take some time away. So he went on vacation to England. And he wasn't really planning to do any preaching. It was more of a sabbatical, more of just a getaway. But he met a preacher there who said, Mr. Moody, you're so well known. Would you come to speak at our church? And so he went to preach the next Sunday morning. And that afternoon, Moody, Moody wrote in his journal. He used to journal and he would, he would write some things. And he said that, he said, this was the deadest crowd he had ever seen and that the only thing worse than preaching to those people was that he had promised to go back that night and preach again. But he went back that night. And he, and he writes in his journal, he says, about halfway through the sermon, something happened. The people started to come to life, he said. And so he felt compelled to ask if anyone there would, would like to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord to become a Christian. And a lot of people stood up. He didn't know what to do, so he said, maybe you don't understand what I'm asking. So when we're dismissed, if you want to become a Christian, come over to this little room with me and we'll talk. And when the service was over, he went to his room. It was packed. Moody said to the minister, what does this mean? He said, I don't know, but I think you need to preach again tomorrow night. <laughs> the next day, Moody got on the train. Went back to, he went to Ireland. He continued his vacation, but when he got off the train, there was a memo that said, come back, revival has broken out. So Moody gets back on the train, goes back to that church, preaches for 10 straight nights, 400 people respond during that time, and he couldn't understand. Those people were dead, they were dead, something, something happened. What was it? Later on, later on down the road, there was an 80-year-old woman named Mary Ann Adelard who had read one of Moody's sermons, she had prayed that God would send Moody to this place and preach the gospel. One person standing in the gap, praying, if my people will humble themselves and pray. Leonard Ravenhill said it this way, and this is a convicting word. He says, the church is dying on its feet because it's not living on its knees. We need to be in prayer for the lost, for those who are far from God, for our family members, for our husbands, for our wives, for those in need of a transformation of the gospel. Do you spend that time in prayer? Do you understand that prayer is a lifeline? Do you have that desire for prayer? Then notice the third thing he says. He goes on and he says, If my people humble themselves and pray, and then notice the next step is to seek my face. Not seek my hand. Not seek the things that I have, but the idea of seeking His face means to get as close as you can. Close as you can. It means to search out by any method, especially by worship and prayer. To have a passion, to be devoted, to have a hunger, to truly seek the Lord. Now, there was a great story I read about a, a, 
a philosopher who was well-known. This young guy, about 16, 17 years old, says, I want to I learn. I want to understand. I want to have lots of wisdom. And so he goes to the philosopher, and he says, I want to learn. He's just kind of real chipper about it. And the philosopher looks at him and says, all right, come with me. They go down to the seashore. He shows him to, you know, to the water, and he says, let's walk in. He's fully clothed. He says, let's, let's walk in. The guy's like, well, he is a philosopher. He knows what he's doing, right? <laughs> they walk into the, to, the, to the beach a little bit, into the ocean, about ankle deep. They go a little bit further, about up to his knees. The philosopher and that young man go in deeper up to his waist. He's up to his chest. And finally, he's at the very brim of his chin. And he looks him in the eyeballs, puts his hands on top of his head, his head and pushes him in the water. So here's this great philosopher holding this young man down, and he ain't letting him go. And so all of a sudden, you know, the young man's underwater thinking, okay, I'm waiting for this, whatever's going to happen to happen. And all of a sudden, he's like, i got to breathe. i got to breathe. And all of a sudden, his arms are starting to flutter. He's starting to re- reject him. And finally, the very last moment, he lets him up. And this young man just like, you know, just trying to get his air, breathe. And he looks at the, at the philosopher and he says, Sir, why did you do that? He said, When you want to know life and wisdom and all that as much as you wanted to breathe then you'll know it you see do we really have a desire do we really have a hunger for God here's the problem we are seeking other things our eyes are distracted our hearts are not in the right direction our our joy is gone our 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 love is gone why because we've gone after other things it's called idolatry this right here can be one of those along with all the other things that are in the world Are we seeking after the world or are we seeking our God? Jesus put it this way. He says, seek first what? The kingdom of God and His righteousness. And then He says, if you seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness and that's what you're after, then God's going to give you something to eat and something to wear and a roof over your head. That's kind of the add-on. That's the app, if you will, to what He's going to give you. Because all that you really need is a relationship with Him to seek that kingdom, to seek that relationship to seek after Him. So we have to ask ourselves, what are our priorities? Because that's what He's asking is, are we going to seek Him? Is our priority to seek Him? Is our number one priority our life? Is it our job? Is it our bank account? Is it our, even our church? That's a good thing, right? Is it our spouse? Is it our hobby? Or is it the Lord? Here's, here's how I used to view, used to view my relationship with God. Let's pretend like we've got a big old chest of drawers here, right? You've got one drawer at the top, two, three, four, maybe you've got seven Seven drawers, right? Guess who the top drawer is? God, right? God's number one. Maybe that second drawer is family. Husband, wife, children. Maybe that third drawer might be church, right? Ministry. And on down the line, the fourth could be the work and all that. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I'm the whole chest, right? I'm number one, number two, number three, number four, number five. I'm all those numbers. I'm first, And out of all that will come, of course, the things that I will bless you with, with a family, with a church, with with opportunities to to enjoy life. I've come to give you life more abundant, but it's in the understanding of His Lordship. But notice the very last thing, and this is the one I believe that we have to look at the best, the most. Not only to humble ourselves, to pray, that is to be dependent upon Him, and to seek His face, to have that desire But number four is to turn from, he calls them wicked ways. He doesn't say mistakes. He doesn't say little errors, boo-boos. 
No, he calls these wicked ways. His people, the people of God. He's not talking about pagan people. He's talking about the people of God if they will turn from their wicked ways. There are three things I believe that this kind of involves. First one we've already talked about is pride. The next one is called pretense. You know what that is? Where you pretend. You ever, you ever been on your way to church and everything's going wrong? Kids are acting up. Uh, things are spilling. The, something got on your clothes. You're, you're fussing each other in the car. You get out of the car and somebody greets you. Oh, hi. How are you doing? It's good to see you too. Isn't it a great day in the Lord? Two seconds prior, you almost blessing each other out. We pretend. that we're all guilty of that. So let's all confess that right now. But pretense in this sense means that my life is fake. It's just, it's just one big phony thing. And there are people in our churches today who are looking, smelling, whatever you want to call it, like a Christian. But they're far from God. They're faking it. They're pretense. It's pretense. It's hypocrisy. Let me give you a good example of this. There's a story about a clown. He worked in a circus, and his role was the clown. Well, ends up that the circus shuts down. He's looking for a job. He's going around different places, and he finally finds a circus where they're looking for somebody, but they actually want him to put on a monkey suit and pretend to be a monkey. He's like, well, it's going to pay the bills, so I'll pretend to be a monkey. So they put him in the monkey cage, and of course, you know, he's like figuring this thing out, and he... He starts climbing up and all this. And so all of a sudden, people start watching. And they start coming and they start looking and they're like cheering on. So he's like, yeah, this is pretty cool. So he gets onto a vine and he swings and he's swinging over and hitting his chest like this, just playing the role of a monkey, of an ape. And all of a sudden, he starts to swing over the lion's den. And really, the people are like, ooh, ah. And more people are coming, so that even strokes his ego. So he's going over and over and over and he's right directly over the lion's den. And all of a sudden, the vine breaks and plop down he goes into the lion's den. Well, he's scared. He's, he's freaking out here. The lions are prowling and getting closer and closer and closer. And finally he says, uh-uh, this is not worth my pay. He takes the monkey head off and says, wait, somebody get me out of here. Somebody get me out of here. The lions are right up in his face. And one of them all of a sudden speaks to him and says, stop or we're all going to get fired. <laughs> That's a picture of the modern day church. We're looking like a Christian, but really we're pretending. Paul talked about this in 2 Timothy. You don't have to turn there, but he lists this whole litany of what the last days are going to be like. The disobedience, the unloving, the, all the different things. But the last one he ends with is the one that grips my heart the most. You know what he says? He says that there are those who are going to be having a form of godliness, but denying its power. It's kind of like the last time I ate a really chocolate bunny rabbit. It was one of those Easter's back when I was about six or seven years old. And I bit into that thing and it was hollow. Remember those hollow bunnies? I've not really had any. I'm just, I don't know, something's wrong with me now. I think I was traumatized. But, but that's what he's talking about. We're hollow. These people are hollow because of the pretense. What we truly need, he says, out of this is to turn. And that word turn means repent. And that word repent doesn't mean that you just feel sorry. That doesn't mean that you just feel bad about it. It means that you truly have grieved a holy God. You recognize that. And so you, you want to turn. You want to go back. You want to leave that life of sin and go back to the God who will save you and redeem you and keep you. It's a change of an awareness. In other words, I realize my sinful, sinfulness. But it's also in a change of an affection. 
I'm sorrowful over my sinfulness. And then it's a change of attitude. I'm repulsed over it. Do you hate your sin? I do. And then it's a change of action. I actually reject my sinfulness. And so maybe you've heard it this way. Repentance is I'm going in this direction, the wrong direction away from God. But when I repent, change of mind, change of heart, change of direction. No longer am I going in the way of the world. I'm now going the way that Jesus, the cross, is taking me. And we need seasons of repentance. Willingness to get honest with ourselves. Sometimes God has to mess things up, straighten things out. You ever been there, done that? He wants to wreck our lives to put it back together again. Notice what he continues to say here. He says, If my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and then turn from their wicked ways, then I will what? Hear from heaven. Three promises here. Heal from, hear from heaven. Forgive their sin. And guess what? Heal their land. Listen, this land needs to be healed. I don't know if you know the story about this or not, but in Manchester, Kentucky, back in 1999-2000, the whole county was just riddled with sinfulness. And I mean, everybody was corrupt. The sheriff was corrupt. The courts were corrupt. Half the schools were on drugs. Half the girls were uh, either pregnant or promiscuous. I mean, it was a terrible, terrible time to be. There was no more. The agriculture was, was dying. There were no deer around, anything like this. Five churches said, we can, we're not going to take this anymore. Five different churches. There was a Baptist church, a Presbyterian church, and a, a two or three others. And they said, these pastors came together and said, let's just pray. That's all we're going to do is we're going to pray. They got together and they prayed and they prayed. And they spent several weeks of just prayer, intense prayer, fellowship, reading the word, digging in. They decided to say, let's, let's have a walk down Main Street to let people know that we love them, but we're standing up for truth. And they thought, well, maybe we'll have a couple hundred. Between the churches here, we might have two or three, four hundred people here. That would be great. It would make, a, hopefully, a good impact, be a catalyst. Well, guess what happens? The day of the event comes, and there are buses coming over the hill full of people from other surrounding counties and other churches. Not a hundred or two hundred people show up. Five thousand people show up for this. It began what has now been called... Uh, a revival that has awakened that area. They actually have gone out to share what God has done. People that were daddies that were on drugs and, 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 and hitting their children were no longer doing that. They were uh, saved, uh, transform, transformed. I mean, all kinds of things. The schools were cleaned up. Kids were now uh, preaching the gospel in the schools. An amazing thing had happened in that place. And guess what happened not too long after that? All of a sudden, the deer had come back. The, the, the agriculture is... Is producing now. Why? Because some people got together. They humbled themselves. They prayed. They sought the face of God. They turned from their own sinfulness. And they allowed God to do a work. And God did that work. Here's the results of what will happen when revival comes. When revival comes, there'll be, number one, a new love for God. You're going to have a great, just an intimate love for the Lord Jesus Christ. It won't be like that church in Ephesus who had all the programs going for them and all the good stuff. They had right doctrine but they were kind of dead in their relationship. No, no, no. When we come to Christ on His terms, we'll have a new love for God. But then we'll also have a new hatred for sin. We'll treat sin like a snake, not like a snicker bar, right? I don't want to sin. I hate it. We'll have a new joy in the Lord. How many of you are sometimes around people who call themselves Christians who look as if they were baptized in pickle juice? Anybody? Been around somebody like that? I have. Listen, if Jesus is in your life, 
Let it be known. Your face will surely show it. I tell people all the time, listen, because of Jesus, because of his blood, because of his sacrifice, because of what he's done for me, I went from jack squat to the jackpot. Yeah, I went from the outhouse to the penthouse. Jesus makes the difference. And we need to show it, a new joy in our lives. Last couple things he'll do is he'll give us a new love for others, especially other believers. If there's anything that's keeping the church from doing what it's supposed to be doing, it's criticism, it's spitefulness, it's division, it's disunity, and it's in every single congregation. And that will kill a congregation. But no, when you get revived, when you understand what God is doing, when you allow Him to do what only He can do in your heart, you're going to have a love for other people despite the fact that they might need a little extra TLC, right? Because that's me and you. But there's also a new freedom a new freedom. One of the illustrations I like to use is this. You know, Lazarus, Jesus called Lazarus out of that tomb, stinky four days out of that tomb. But did you know when he came out of that tomb, he was still wrapped up? He was still bound. What God wants to do, unfortunately, is a lot of Christians who are, they're alive, they're still bound. And Jesus says, unwrap him, take it off. When you come to Christ and understand and you've humbled yourself and you've sought the face of God and you've turned from your wicked ways, you've repented, guess what? We're alive and we're free. We're free. And that leads to the last thing, and that is a, a new power. See, the church, it's not the church that has the power. It's Jesus in the church that has the power. Go to the day of Pentecost. Go to that day right there. When Pentecost came, the Holy Spirit indwelled the people of God. Peter, who usually stuck his foot in his mouth, stood up, preached a word, and 3,000 people... 3,000 on one day came to know the Lord. And from that point on, the church was on fire. Jesus went up, the Spirit came down, and the church went out. We need to be a first century church in the 21st century where we have the power of God in our lives because we understand the holiness of God in our lives. He hears us. He forgives us. That is, He gives us peace. And if you go back to Psalm, let's go back to Psalm 85, and we'll close with this. When we go back to that place, when he asked that question, will you not revive us, Lord, that your people may rejoice in you? He asks him to show mercy, to grant salvation, that he would hear the word speak. Those, that word peace means forgiveness. It means to be released from the, bound, the bonds of chains and sin and pride. And notice what he says in verse 9, that your glory may dwell in our land. That's my prayer tonight. That the glory of God may dwell in the land. The people of God are the only people that can be revived. If you're dead in your sins, you need to be regenerated, right? We want the glory of the Lord to dwell in this land. So that those who are believers are going to be powerful under the mighty hand of God. And those that aren't believers are going to come to see the realization that they need Jesus Christ as their Savior. I want to close with one last story here. And I don't know if it's a true story, but it's a great parable. It's about a man who had a son, and he loved his son. His wife had died, and so he and his son did a lot of stuff together and spent lots of time together. But the time came in which his son, at the age of 18, had to go off to war. And he was out in war, and word got back that he had actually died in war. And so the man, the father, of course, was grieved he was a man who actually collected a lot of paintings. His son and he liked to collect lots of paintings, rare paintings, very expensive paintings. Six months, eight months down the road, there was a knock at the door. And a man stood there in a uniform and tears in his eyes. And he said to, his fa to this father, he said, I want you to know, sir, that 
that I am the man that your son saved as he died. And I am indebted to you. He said, I, I want to give this to you. And he had a picture of his son that he had painted. He was a painter himself and had painted just a beautiful picture of his son all decked out. And father just wept and it was just a beautiful time. And he thanked him and they went on his way. And he put that painting right front and center. That was the most best painting he had. Of all the ones he had that were worth hundreds of thousands of dollars and even millions of dollars, that one was his favorite. Skip on down a few years. The father dies and he goes on to be with the Lord. And so there's an estate, there's an auction. And the auction is the auctioneer's there and people have come from all over. We're talking different states and even countries to come and to bid on these famous pictures. And so the first bid is on the sun. It's on the picture of the sun. And he, he says, the auctioneer says, all right, who will give me $20, $20 going first? And nobody raises their hand. So the auctioneer's kind of a little, he's a little awkward here. He's like, Okay, $15, $15. Will anybody give $15, $15 for the first item up for bid? Nobody raises their hand. Finally, somebody in the very back says, $10, I got $10. The auctioneer says, all right, we've got $10. Do we, do we have any more? $15, $15. Anybody, anybody else? Going once, $15, going twice, $15. Sold to the man in the back for $10. Then he picks up the gavel and he lays the gavel down. He says the auction is over. All of a sudden there's a commotion. No, 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 no. That's the first picture. Let's get on to the good stuff. Let's get on to the other ones that are worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. We're ready to bid. The man looks into the will of the father and the will of the father says, and he read this to the people, he said, whoever gets the son gets it all. 1 John 5 says this, Whoever has the Son has the life. As we come to this time of invitation, as we come to this time and place, do you have the Son? And do you have the life? Maybe you felt deflated and defeated and discouraged and in despair. Maybe you're coming tonight and you've got some problems in your life. Maybe it's marital. Maybe it's struggles with your children. Maybe it's struggle with something, some sin. I heard a man say he'd pray. Every time he'd come to church, he'd pray, Lord, get the cobwebs out of my life. Lord, just take these cobwebs away. And he'd do that every single service, talking about his sin. And finally, one man stood up and said, Lord, kill the spider. <laughs> the source, right? Maybe tonight you need to kill the source. Would you stand with me? Would you stand to your feet as we pray? And as we ask God right now, as we respond, however he's been touching your heart, however he's been speaking to your heart, maybe you're, you're again, just desperate tonight for a word from Him. And maybe He's spoken life into you. Maybe He's given you that understanding that, that He is the one. He's the one who wants to be the Lord of your life. He's the one who wants to be in control. Maybe, you've been a, maybe you're a control freak and you've been wanting the steering wheel and He's saying, hands off. As we pray, maybe we need to come for a time of just confession at this altar, turning from our sins. Realizing that real revival and the vision that we have for revival is found in these words that we will humble ourselves. Maybe you need to humble yourself. There's something in your life that pride is continuing to, to feel. Maybe you need to come and pray. Maybe you need to seek the Father. Whatever it is, as I pray, you come. You respond in the way that the Spirit is leading, that Spirit of God who is falling fresh upon us. Don't quench or grieve the Spirit. Respond to the Spirit as we pray. Father, we come 
in your name and in the name of Jesus, the one who has provided a way out of our sin and a way in to the kingdom. Lord, your word tells us that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. So, Lord, maybe we need to come and receive Christ as Savior and Lord tonight. Maybe we've played the church game, the churchianity game. Maybe we've played that whole thing for many, many years, and tonight's the night that we want to get it real and make it right. Lord, maybe tonight, though, we're all believers here, and those of us who are believers here know that there are times when we are neglectful and we drift. And there are times, Lord, and even maybe today, we just have just felt less and less of your presence. But we know that you always call us back. And that your grace is sufficient for all things. And so I pray right now that, God, you would just lead us to respond, whether where we're at or here at this altar. Lord, not just to do it to do it, but really to do it because we know within our hearts that, Lord, this is what's going to make a change, a real, true, genuine change in our lives. God, I think that you would just do your will, have your will done right now. We want to see this county ablaze with your glory. We want to see our homes and our churches and this land healed. And so that's our desperate cry tonight. It's our plea with you tonight. But let it begin right here with me, with us. Could it be that those of us who have come together tonight could be the catalyst for what could come? Not that it's us, Lord. It's not us. It's you. But we're willing to sacrifice. We know that revival will cost us something. It will cost us time. It will cost us sacrifice. It will cost us maybe even our very lives. And so God, as we come, we can come to this altar. We can come with all of our burdens, the weight that's upon us, the sin that so easily entangles us. We can also come with our hurts. We can come with our prayer petitions for the lost. Maybe a son or a daughter, maybe a husband or a wife. And we can bring them to this altar. God, have your way as we sing, as we pray, as we worship, and as we respond in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com. Or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.